steps for brands. One giant leap for brand kind. You're listening to Food Chain, presented by Perfy. A big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Hit the link in the show notes and use promo code PERFY for 15% off today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Food Chained. Today, we have Marilyn Yang with us from Papadelix. She is the CEO and co-founder. Welcome to the show, Marilyn. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Excited to, to get into this one. So many questions lined up for you. But before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So a bit of a long-ish story. It was a COVID story is maybe the short version of it. My co-founder, Mike Casale, and myself were partners in both business and in life. So we like to joke that Papadelix is our COVID baby. But how it really all came about is we're both from finance. So I'm from more of a private equity investing background, and he's from a venture capital background. Not necessarily CPG or food products or anything like that. I, I was more in general industrials and Mike was more in healthcare. But, you know, given our backgrounds, I think we've been exposed to a lot of businesses and we've just always wanted to start our own business. But, you know, we just never came across the right idea. And I guess it really took COVID for us to have our creative juices flowing. And we're based in New York City. And so we were stuck and cooped up in our small apartment. And long story short, we're huge foodies. And the next closest thing you can get to going out to eat during COVID was going to explore the aisles of the grocery store. And so that was pretty much the only conversation topic we had for a while. Like, oh, what new snack did you find at Whole Foods last week? And so that's kind of where, you know, we're both huge mushroom lovers. And it just came up very organically this one day. I think it was in May or maybe April. It was pretty early on during the lockdown. So we were pretty bored. and. We just kind of, it just came up like, oh, I wonder if there's any mushroom chips out there. I, you know, I've been eating these cauliflower chips and like beet chips. Doesn't seem that strange. And again, we both love mushrooms. And so we just went online and really just wanted, were curious and wanted to try some mushroom chips. And we were kind of surprised to find that there just wasn't really much out there. So the stuff that we did find was largely unbranded or it was unflavored or it was unexciting or all three. And so it left like a lot to be desired. And also it felt like lost potential too. I mean, we're, again, we're big foodies and love mushrooms. And so we've been following kind of a more broadly that, you know, there's been mushroom coffees and teas popping up. And it just seems surprising to us that there hadn't been a kind of like a coolly branded, modern, edgy mushroom brand out there yet. Definitely nothing in the mushroom chip space. I think there's some cool mushroom jerkies out there, but we were looking for something crunchy. And so the more we looked into it, the more excited we got. I mean, it really didn't seem like anyone was out there doing something like this. And on top of that, uh, we had a lot of free time during COVID. And it just felt like a lot of stars aligning that not only this was the right idea, but it was the right timing, not just from a macro standpoint with interest in mushrooms, but also with us, I think, personally having the time to focus on a business. We didn't have you know social distractions or other distractions around us at the time. And so that's kind of how everything started. And I'll touch a little bit too on our parent company too. So we did a, I guess, coming from the finance world, we were thinking big. We kind of set ourselves up to have a corporate entity called Fungal Snacks, kind of a play on word there. And I think the idea is that obviously Papadelics is what we're focused on very much so right now, but there's so many other 
vegetables, I suppose, like mushrooms, not that mushrooms are a vegetable, but you know, you catch my drift, that just aren't represented today in the snacking world. I mean, there's a bunch of kale, there's a bunch of potatoes, obviously, but there's so much more out there than that. And and so the ultimate goal is to start rolling out other brands, focus on other what we call underloved veggies. So very much so uh, further down the line, again, we're very much so focused on popadelics and I think uh, very personally attached to kind of pushing mushrooms to the masses and kind of our ultimate goal right now with popadelics is to make mushroom chips mainstream. Yeah, so that's pretty much where we're at now. We just launched the product in April of this year. So although we came up with the idea in 2020, obviously it took us a while to, to actually get a physical product in hand. Amazing. couple things. So I think there's a running theme with this podcast where the founders come from the finance background or their business and life partners or both. It's pretty awesome. And it's it's fun to chat with folks. Like, I think you're like the fifth or sixth finance person from, I might change the name of the podcast to like from finance to CPG. I absolutely love it. Yeah, no, actually, it's funny, even within my own friend group, uh, whether they're from finance or like consulting or something. I think it was maybe COVID that maybe accelerated some of this. But I feel like most people in finance or a lot of people in finance want to ultimately do something else. And I think it's a good kind of industry to start in to kind of at least get kind of exposed to how businesses should run or shouldn't run. And so I'm not surprised, but uh, I think COVID really definitely, I think, accelerated that for a lot of people, even me personally in my network. Yeah, COVID definitely shook things up, but it's really cool though. I think I always talk about how there's different types of founders. Like when you play video games, you can choose different characters and each character has their own set of strengths and weaknesses. And for me, like I'm a marketing founder and it's so cool to see, you know, finance founders out there. That's a skill that's tough to teach. Whereas marketing, we're relearning our jobs every year. So very fun background that you brought to the table. I've got a, a question specifically on underloved. I have that written down in my notes as just a term that I really found interesting and I really appreciated it. How did you come up with mushrooms as your first kind of hero base? I think it really has to do with Mike and me personally. I think the idea was really born stemming from mushrooms. I think ultimately, with the more we thought about it, the more vegetables we thought up. But mushrooms were really what started it all. And and actually, it kind of makes so much sense in retrospect when we think back. I mean, we always joke. I mean, when we first started dating, actually, one of the first things we bonded over, and I, I kid you not, we bonded over our mutual love of mushrooms, because it is kind of a strange thing. And I don't personally know many people who like mushrooms to that extent, to the point where it's basically a part of your personality. And so that was actually a legitimate thing we bonded over, which is really funny to think back on. But maybe it's even more of an indication. So I've always liked mushrooms. I, you know, I'm from a Chinese American background. And so I grew up eating a ton of mushrooms. And I was a super picky eater. So it was basically one of the only essentially healthy things that my parents could get me to eat growing up. And I was kind of that weird kid that liked mushrooms, or that's kind of what I was known as. And I remember being made fun of for liking mushrooms, but who cares? Because they were great. And when I first even told some friends that we were kind of looking to start a company and our first product was making maybe going to be mushroom based. Literally, one of my friends even said to me, Marilyn, that's so on brand for you. If that's any mm. indication of, I think, just how much it made sense that the, it would be a mushroom sack product that I would have started. I don't think people were that surprised that I started a company, actually. But I think it just made so much sense to them that I would start a company like this, actually, which is really funny because... I guess I, I wouldn't have necessarily predicted it, but I think a lot of things uh, make a lot of sense connecting the dots looking back. Very cool. 
I see that you won Best Snack Award in the Startup CVG Awards. I was actually at Daniel's house watching that when those went down. So my question is, the industry knows how cool of an innovation this is. Are you finding any trouble with consumers thinking that maybe the mushrooms are funny mushrooms? And how do you bypass that objection? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we definitely find that. I think some of it is maybe on purpose a little bit, but I think some of the reactions are maybe more frequent or at least slightly different than what we were expecting. I think when we also, we can't take full credit for our amazing branding and packaging. We work with this uh, just shout out, I guess, to our marketing and branding agency, Freshmade, their boutique firm based out of Florida, actually. And we found them on Google, believe it or not. We actually kind of spoke to a few different agencies and we felt like they grasped our vision the best and they really did bring it to life. And it's funny because we talk about this a lot too, where when we were conceptualizing the brand, there were a lot of different paths we could have gone down. And I think we decided to go down essentially, I think what was the most, gave the most pop given the name Papadelics, but also was possibly the most controversial in a good way. Mm -hmm. And so we were pretty intentional about that. I think the reaction has been, like I said, maybe more frequent than we thought it would be. Because uh, again, I think the color scheme and obviously a lot of that, we are going for that 70s vibe. We do actually have a direct connection to psilocybin as well. It was important for us when we started the company to have a charitable or social impact angle. And so kind of a natural cause for us, in addition to our mission in general of kind of making mushrooms mainstream. We mean all mushrooms, so that includes psilocybin. And so we do support research into the use of psilocybin to treat mental health indirectly through our product and our charitable organization. And so that was all kind of, um, it, it all kind of tied together. I think we were surprised, though, that people thought our actual product had psilocybin in it, which, you know, who knows, that could be a cool brand extension someday. Mm. Um, but at least right now, these are just shiitake mushroom chips. I think some of it, though, we don't mind too much because it gets people talking about the product. And frankly, a lot of people, if they just saw a boring mushroom chip packaging or just a boring kind of packaging that said mushroom chips, they wouldn't gravitate towards it at all. I think a lot of people have the wrong idea about mushrooms. They don't, they claim not to like mushrooms. I think it's a very polarizing ingredient. Like I said, I was even made fun of for liking mushrooms when I was a kid. And so if there wasn't, I think, some interesting angle with our product, I don't think people would have even bothered to, you know, try it. And I think we were very conscious about that. And we were like, okay, so what's a way to get people at least to, you know, try it or at least get curious about it or whatever, even if they don't like mushrooms. And part of that was kind of through the controversy, but okay, like what do people know about mushrooms? And I guess for whatever reason, right, a lot of people's main association with mushrooms is still on the psilocybin end of things. And so we were kind of uh, toying with that a little bit. And uh, we get some funny comments all the time, but I think people who get it, get it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're going for that vibe again. So it's really kind of maybe challenging people's perceptions a little bit as well, because, you know, we, we don't see ourselves as too much different than, say, like Lisa Frank, right, with the color schemes and all of that. And Obviously, when you think of Lisa Frank, you're, you're, not, you're not thinking about drugs. So I think it's just challenging people's idea that there's only one type of mushroom out there. And I think that's part of what we want to bring attention to as well, is that we feature shiitake mushrooms, which I think a lot of people also aren't familiar with. In the U.S., over 90% of mushrooms consumed is just normal white button mushrooms. And maybe that's why a lot of people say they don't like mushrooms, because they just haven't tasted the right type of mushroom they like. I mean, even me as a mushroom lover, I don't like all types of mushrooms. And so I think we're really trying to bring attention to a lot of different things. I think there's a 
a lot of conscious thought, I think, that went through the decision to go this route with our marketing and branding. But I think it is overall having the effect we want it to, though. It's getting a lot of people, I think, at least, to, for example, when we do live events to come up to us. And even if they don't like mushrooms, they, you know, we get them to try it and they're like, wow, like I hate mushrooms, but these are amazing. And that's exactly the type of reaction we're looking for. Love it. Yeah. I think the branding is so groovy and it really, really nails it. Super fun. And like, I guess I want to take a a quick step back down memory lane from 2020 to April of this year when you launch. What was it like identifying a co-man or maybe you guys are producing yourselves like some other brands? Was that difficult or did you do you have support in finding that? You don't have to say who I obviously don't want to know that or may not want people knowing that. But what was that process like? Yeah. So again, we had a lot of help here. And <laughs> actually a huge shout out as well to Rodeo CPG. We worked with their operations arm, consulting arm. And for those not familiar, they're a kind of a all full service, I guess, consultancy for CPG startups. And we actually first connected to them because we worked with them on the R&D for our products. I think Mike and I very consciously knew that we were not chefs. I mean, we live in New York City, so we barely even have a kitchen. So definitely not where our kind of wheelhouse was in terms of actually developing a product. And so that was one of the first things we, we knew we needed help with. And so we very quickly went out and you know looked for help there. And so that's how we originally connected with Rodeo. And then kind of as our product development continued and came time to think about production, we kind of also started working with their operations team. And so they helped us tremendously in terms of setting up our supply chain, finding our suppliers that we still use today, as well as our co-packer that we still use today. And I think it was incredibly unique of a time. It's funny because it's all we've personally known, but I think it was a lot more complex than during normal times because of COVID. And actually, even when we first identified our our co-packer, it took us quite a while to set up you know, the trial runs and all of that, partially because of COVID closures. Also, there was a lot of labor shortages, partially because of, you know, people getting sick or not feeling comfortable going to work. And we do co-pack domestically as well. So, but a lot of our suppliers are international. And so there was kind of the extra coordination of shipping everything here and then getting it to the co-packer. And then there was, you know, shipping delays. So there was a lot of moving pieces and I think in a good way, I guess it was that we didn't know anything different, like I said earlier. So it's just kind of how things were. But I think we have noticed things have gotten better today, for example, versus when we first started. We just actually did another production run that we completed last week. And that went much more smoothly, I think, than any of the other production runs we'd done to date. And partially, it was because uh, you know a lot of the supply chain challenges have at least improved. And I guess it's so. It's all, I guess it's only getting easier from here. So we've gone through a lot of, I think, the most difficult parts of it when we were first getting started. So cool. I I spoke to Rodeo early on as well for Perfy. Ended up going with with City Capital's operations arm. Simply, there's one shout out for me on that end, and Cody won that one for me. Cody and Melissa were instrumental in me going with them over Rodeo. But I I love Rodeo. They've been so kind throughout the year. They've been sending people over as referrals to my marketing agency. So. Big shout out to them too. It's cool that it's so priceless having an ops partner early on. For me, I think I commend those who have been able to grow from their apartment. Like I'm a big fan of Sandro from Sanzo and he had so many cases in his apartment in New York and delivered orders himself. Same thing with Paul from Ouroboros. 
but me, I, I wanted to invest in one of my biggest weaknesses and I have no idea what to do in supply chain and finding people to provide trays or raw ingredients. So I think it's a smart move for people to invest in their backend early on because you're set up for scale once it happens. It's funny. I think we went through a similar thought process. I mean, I think we knew that we didn't have the skill set, first of all, to produce the product for sure. Mm-hmm. So we definitely needed help on that end. And I think we, I don't know, we just thought it was actually quicker if we were to find help on the operations side too, because we could have, you know, started cold calling and you know, cold emailing commands and co-packers, but that would have probably, we probably would have eventually been able to get it done, but I think it would have delayed things by another, at least a year or so. And I think we were conscious too about the timing. We didn't want to wait too long to get the product out there because we felt like there would be others. And in some ways we kind of want there to be others because I think that brings more legitimacy to the mushroom chip category. I think part of, of course, I think we started talking about this earlier, the challenge is getting people aware of what a mushroom chip even is. I think it just overall texture-wise and everything about it is just very different than what people expect it to be. And so in some ways, we almost want there to be other mushroom chip products out there in addition to ours. So people get a sense that, hey, this isn't an actual thing, not just a you know one-trick pony or something like that. Yeah, I think, you know, thank you for sending some along. I was pleasantly surprised. I thought the, I think, with, man, which is the rose, was it rosemary or sage and, and salt? Yeah, rosemary and salt. Yeah. Yeah, that one slaps. I had some this morning. I crack a few yes. every every morning. Super yeah, good. Good uh, breakfast item. Yeah, I've got nothing against mushrooms. I love them on pizza. I love them my omelets. I'm super into them basically in everything. So I think they taste really good. Let's talk about positioning. So I think it's super cool. Mushroom chips is like you're the only person or only brand that I can think of doing that. All of the others are probably dried ones with clear packaging and a sticker on them and meant for like, I don't even know. I don't even know. I see them sometimes in like farmer's markets or like in the the back end section of a Whole Foods. I think you've done a great job. And like my question is, when does everyone know that caps are the top part of mushrooms? Because I didn't know. I just figured that, you know, it was going to be the top part, but I didn't I didn't know they were called caps. And what does it look like when educating people caps versus chips in your positioning? Yeah, it's funny. We when we were thinking about ideas for the product, we actually considered calling our product caps instead of chips for a while. But we thought that would be confusing because to your point, like what are caps? And so we wanted to name our product something where people instinctively at least knew what it was. So kind of even when we do a live events or when we talk to people just experiencing our product, what we like to say is that, you know, this is a, a mushroom chip. So like a potato chip, but made with mushrooms. And so because people know obviously what a potato chip is. Yep. And so we want to evoke that same kind of, it's the same type of crunch. And I think that's the main barrier to people when educating them about our product specifically is that most people haven't had mushrooms in any other form other than maybe raw. And so that texture component was really important for us to highlight, which we felt like Chip did a better job of than, than Cap. Because actually, when I think of Cap, I think of baseball caps for whatever reason, and those are typically soft. And so we, we wanted something to evoke more of that crunch. So a lot of our language kind of focuses on highlighting that crunch as well. I think we like uh, turning the sound up as well when we, we do videos. It is a very noticeable crunch when people bite into it. But I think even then, I think the big piece is you do just have to get people to try it. It's one of those things that I almost feel like it's like, oh, you have to try it to believe it kind of deal. Because I don't think even when we verbally say like, oh, yeah, it's crunchy like a chip. It's so funny because we'll see people like trying to bite into it as if it was like a gummy bear. And then 
they hurt their teeth because they're like, oh, wow, this is actually hard. And so it's just really funny. I think um, people, I think, uh, just really just need to, to quite literally bite into it to quite understand kind of what it is. Yeah, but it's really interesting. I think I think we, we want to, just, again, just evoke that crunchiness of the product. Super interesting. I had Jason Wright from Wild Chips on the podcast a few months ago, and we talked pretty in depth about when Wild first launched, they were like their statement of identity was chicken chips. And as they grew, they learned that protein chips would then become that statement of identity. And then he, I think he does made with simple ingredients like chicken, egg whites, and you know, whatever else. And that was such a cool move that he made. And just wanted to share that. Like it's fun seeing the snacking category. It's great seeing people that are doing things completely different. Him with chicken, you with mushrooms. Super delicious. They got heft and crunch. I mean, what's next? Are you guys, I mean, you don't have to give us too deep of a look under the hood, but are you thinking about other underloved items or are you going to go with a psilocybin route? I think we definitely have a definitely a lot of different routes. I think just with developing new flavors, I think uh, we've heard from a lot of people that all our flavors today are savory. So a lot of interest perhaps in a sweet flavor, we also think could be super interesting. Also, we've toyed around with the idea of having limited edition flavors. I think that's a bit complex from a production standpoint, but I think from a kind of more of a marketing buzz standpoint, I think there's a lot of interesting things we could do there with seasonal flavors and that sort of thing or short run limited edition type stuff. So just with the product itself, I think we see a lot of you know potential kind of future opportunities there. In terms of other products, I think we definitely do have other veggies in mind. In particular, we didn't talk about this yet, but we use a cooking method that's a bit I think it's gaining traction here now, but it's not super common in the US and it's pretty common in Asia. It's called vacuum frying. I don't know if you come across it at all, but Terra chips, for example, are vacuum fried. They're pretty much the only mainstream snack that are. Essentially what it is, is it requires like super specialized equipment, but you're cooking in a vacuum chamber. So this isn't something that you can do at home. It requires kind of equipment the size of a, of a production facility kind of a cylindrical, almost like a water tank type of device. And when you cook at a lower temperature, and I'm not a scientist, so vastly simplifying what happens <laughs> here, but the cooking, I guess the boiling point of water is much lower at a lower pressure. And so you're able to cook foods at much lower temperatures, which allows it to be a healthier process because then you're not killing off any of the nutrients. You're not burning off any of the, the good parts of whatever it is you're cooking. And it also doesn't require as much oil. But it does result in that super crunchy, really interesting texture. And so we see a lot of potential with using that same process with other vegetables, especially creating kind of that crunch, that specific crunch, but also doing it in a way that's a bit better for you from a health standpoint. So there's a couple little things, I think definitely things we could be doing with papadelics on the psilocybin front. I think we're, it's almost a shame, I guess we're our brand is almost too perfect, but I think we would want to separate the brands in some way mm-hmm. uh, because we, we don't want there to, I mean, there already is confusion, but we want our products to be for everyone, you know, including, you know, kids and families and that sort of thing. And we wouldn't want there to be confusion about, you know, this not, you know, being appropriate for people under the age of 21 or anything like that. So, so we'll have to think about that one a bit more, but I think in the immediate term, yeah, new flavors, new vegetables, using our cooking process, I think a lot of potential for all of those routes. Two things. Vacuum frying sounds like an air fryer and sous vide had a baby. Is that pretty much a simple way to put it? Actually, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to put it. I kind of hope they come out with like a at-home version of it. I don't know if you can. It might just be a bit too dangerous. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, pretty much. 
Second thing is regarding confusion, I think it's super smart the way that you're laying it out. Right now, I can think of a place in the beverage industry that has a lot of confusion right now, and that's non-alcoholic versus alcoholic RTDs. There are some that are like named happy water or there's drinks that are saying that they're margaritas and it's almost mayhem out there right now. And there's just way too much confusion for the consumer. I think it's great that you can kind of dictate your path of being one of the first to create mushroom chips. But one thing to watch out for and, and to see how things are playing out is definitely in the RTD alk and non-alk beverages. It's just super confusing right now. People are buying, you know, you might be in the, the alcoholic section, but there are times people are buying NA drinks there and they end up being alcoholic. Yeah, actually, I've probably come across that myself even because I'm, I'm super curious too because I don't really drink alcohol too much anymore. So I am always on the lookout for alternatives out there. And yeah, it's super, to your point, it's pretty confusing because I don't even know what aisle to look for them in sometimes because sometimes they loop them in with sodas. Sometimes they're in the alcohol section to your point. And then you don't know if they're actually grouped together with actual alcoholic drinks. So yeah, I think like category managers and merchandisers can probably help out with that confusion because there's been you know some horror stories and I, I fear that's going to get a little bit too complicated and there'll be some sanctions coming down. But uh, my next question is, who are some of the people that are making psilocybin a little bit more mainstream? I can think of a couple in my head that it's kind of interesting seeing it being not taboo anymore, which is cool. But who are some people that are helping lay the groundwork that you can think of? In terms of actual CPG brands, I actually don't know the names of many of them. And a lot of them are still kind of underground. So there's a few, um, you know, chocolate brands that we've come across. There's a few actual, they actually, I think they may have gotten shut down, but there's this one website we came across where you can actually just buy the mushrooms, the psilocybin mushrooms direct, which we were surprised they were able to do that. But again, I think we haven't been able to see them recently. So I wonder if they got into trouble for that. But yeah, it's still, I guess, a big gray area there. I think there are a lot of, in terms of what we directly support, a lot of more academic institutions that are bringing a more, I guess, mainstream interest into it in a more, I guess, legal way. So at least as of today, I think the legality of certain things may be changing very quickly. But for example, the Johns Hopkins Institute for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, that's one of the first academic institutions to be running trials, I think even tracing back to the 80s or 90s or something like that, um, to use psilocybin to treat mental health disorders such as addiction and depression and that sort of thing. And there's a bunch of academic institutions doing studies now. I think even uh, in New York City, I think Columbia is doing something. I've heard of people you know, trying to get into some of their, their studies. And so I think there's a lot being done more on the mental health side of things. And I think a lot of clinics these days are actually introducing maybe some treatments on a trial basis, which is really interesting to see. So I think Ketamine's been used more commonly, but I think a lot of people are bringing more alternatives as well, such as psilocybin. So I think we've been following it perhaps uh, maybe more so also because of Mike's background coming from more of the biotech space, more from kind of the treatment angle than kind of the consumer angle. But it is really interesting to see those worlds actually start to collide as well. Yeah, I could think of, I remember Aaron Rodgers during the offseason talking about it. And I think that he's doing a great job pushing it forward. I think too many people look at the on the field side of things where he's not having his best season, more so than the help that he's trying to put out there for people who can use it from a treatment perspective. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really interesting too. I think in general, I think to see maybe more, I guess, attention in general being brought to plant-based medicine or more, you know, natural slash Eastern even practices of medicine. I think it is kind of interesting to see that I think becoming more mainstream. 
funny enough, I grew up with a ton, again, coming from a Chinese family. I've had a ton of home remedies that I used growing up. And it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of cool to see them being more talked about or more mainstream. Because a lot of them, I think, for in a lot of cases, are probably healthier or at least better for your liver. Because, you know, you're just either plants versus, you know, chemicals or whatever actual cough syrup, for example, is made out of. Yeah, I think it's definitely a worthy um, a worthy ingredient or treatment for people who need it. I love the fact that it's being studied more. But one thing I like asking every founder that comes on the show is like your biggest aha moment with your brand and your biggest oh shit moment. You can start with whichever one you want, but usually the aha is like a breakthrough and the oh shit's like, uh, we've got to figure something out here because something went wrong. Yeah, so I guess the oh shit moment was, I think there was a lot of complicated things with COVID, but when we identified actually vacuum frying as what we wanted to do, I think there was just so much complexity with being able to create a product that was vacuum fried because it just wasn't being done domestically. And you know, we kind of had to do a little bit of a 180 there because we, our original goal, especially because of COVID, we just knew there would be supply chain issues. We wanted to do everything domestically. We wanted to be able to source domestically, you know, all our ingredients domestic and obviously co-pack domestic. And because we decided on vacuum frying, that just wasn't possible. So we do do pretty much everything domestically, but we do have to get the vac, the mushrooms pre-vacuum fried abroad. So everything's seasoned and packaged and whatnot at our co-packer here but we have to get you know the mushrooms pre-vacuum fried from overseas and that was just a whole process to set up and find the right supplier for and it just added a lot of layers to even the timing of production and all of that but i think the reason we stuck with it is that first and foremost we were looking for to develop a product that actually tasted good i think when we were maybe this is a naive way to develop a product and I think we, you know, tried a number of iterations of cooking methods and different types of mushrooms as well. But it was really core for us to be going down the path of whatever we thought actually tasted the best. And by far, the vacuum fried shiitake mushrooms tasted the best. You know, for example, if we went with air frying, it would have been much easier, but it would have been a subpar product. And we felt like, especially in a category where a lot of people have had poor experiences with mushrooms, we really needed something that actually tasted really good. And so I think that's what really, that gave, that's what ultimately gave us the motivation to stick with it. But that definitely was the cause of a lot of early frustration. And I think if it wasn't for that, we might've been able to launch the product even back in 2020. So it just it kind of added some time. I mean, now that we're set up, I think we're okay, but definitely just, it made the whole production of our product super complicated thing but i guess the aha thing now that we have that all set up is that we always joke that when we launch our next product whatever it may be i think it's just going to be much easier because especially if we go outside of snacks i think we've talked about launching you know other types of products as well i think it would just be immensely quicker and easier than what we did with papadelics it's almost like we could have like I don't even think we could have thought of like the mo- most complicated supply chain out there, but we basically started out with call it you know level 100, and so everything else we do is probably closer to like a level 10. So it probably set us up well for the future because we've already gone through maybe the hardest things you could have gone through with at least setting up everything during COVID and supply chain issues and dealing with international suppliers and all of that. I think another aha moment for us was when we realized the power of live selling. 
So we knew, and part of this, I think, timed up to where things were finally opening up after COVID and these events were coming back. But we initially actually didn't put too much of an emphasis in doing live events. I think we quickly found that that was super important again for that trial. But we also found that certain types of events, I don't know if you've done or gone to things like Vegandale, but we did very well at Vegandale, for example, where it was an event where people could try the snack, but also buy it if they liked it. And so in any situation like that, we've really kind of blown it out of the water. And so especially as an early brand where cash flow is important, I think we've kind of made it conscious effort to go to kind of more more of those like vegan and vegetarian festivals. I think it's a really good crowd that's really open to new things as well. But just getting the product out there, I think, in a more direct way. It's kind of like we like to call it in-person D2C. So we we really like in-person D2C. I like that. It's a good way of framing it. Do you use like Shopify? uh, What's it called? Uh, POS? Yeah, we do, actually. I mean, we have a Shopify site. So the POS is all kind of integrated with everything. Yeah, I've got one of those little card readers. I did a little bit of that at LA Fit Expo. We did that event as a test. Some brands make their expo fees back doing that. I know that the folks at Legendary Foods do pretty well at shows and they came from the Quest Nutrition world where I came from. Very fun thing. I, I don't think I'm doing enough of that. But now that I have a pallet in my garage, I probably nice. should be doing doing that. Yeah, the only hard part about that is that it's a very manual slog. So yeah, yeah and I, I feel like I'm getting better at it, but um, especially working a desk job up until now, like I think just standing for so long was t- very tiring. And then I felt like I was losing my voice, <laughs> like very much so by even the middle of the first day. So. I think we've gotten better at it over time, but I think it's really cool too to be able to interact directly with potential early adopters. I think so too. Speaking of standing for so long, I've got a funny story about Expo East. So these Expo East and Expo West are typically very expensive shows for startup brands and often cost prohibitive. And even though it was for me, I was like, F it, you know, you only live once, I'm going to give this a go. And it was very groundbreaking for Perfy. But one thing I skimped on was carpet or some sort of padding on the floor at our booth. I was like, nope, not paying the 500 or whatever bucks for it. I flew in coolers from uh, Amazon that I just left there. It was cheaper than trying to get them in through the um, the services team. But that's probably one thing I'll never skimp on again because we were standing for eight to 10 hours a day. By the time we okay. were done, we were hurting. And I'm definitely having cushions on the floor at Expo West in March. I think the key is the good shoes. We wore the uh, Adidas I think it was called Ultra Boost. I forgot the name. I'm not a big sneaker person, clearly. <laughs> but Adidas has really nicely padded shoes that have served us well whenever we've done live events or trade shows. But yeah, I can only imagine. I assume you were standing right on the kind of the concrete ground. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. We were. I was wearing Hoka's, which have like the most padding out of all shoes are like moon shoes. I think the only thing that would help me is either cutting my weight in half or getting some sort of like back to the future gravity boots where I yeah. can just hover. <laughs> well, you could try DIYing the flooring too. That's what we did at a summer fancy food show. We went to Home Depot, bought peel and stick flooring, <laughs> believe it or not. Oh. And we just went there and physically laid our own flooring, actually. So that actually worked out pretty well. We, I think it only cost like a hundred bucks for the materials. And we obviously did the labor ourselves. I like that idea. I have like uh, those cushions in my garage for the garage gym and those weren't too expensive. I might have to ship some of those there. Good call. Yeah, got to DIY what you can, I guess. 100%, as scrappy as you can be early on and always now. Yeah, I remember. Well, this has been awesome, Marilyn. I'm going to link in the show notes, your website, where to buy, yours and Michael's, LinkedIn's, all that good stuff. 
But before we jump off, is there anything exciting you want to share about Papadelics in the near future? Yeah, well, we're making... Uh, so we've primarily been, I guess, focused on D2C, a lot of in-person D2C actually this past year. So we did, we've done a lot of like festivals and events and that sort of thing. And so I think 2023 is going to be the year of retail for us. We are in a bunch of independent stores already, but really just one-off kind of, you know, independent natural food type places. But we'll be launching soon in some larger chains and also have recently onboarded with a couple of national distributors. And so we're really going to be making a big push next year. And so hopefully that means it's going to be easier than ever to be able to find our snacks in places that you're already grocery shop. So we're pretty excited about that, just to broaden the reach and the discoverability. Hell yeah. Congrats. How has it been pitching buyers something that they probably haven't seen before? I think once they try it, they tend to get it. So I think that's the big thing. I I think once you send people samples, it tends to be pretty well received. And I think people see too, and this is what we saw when we wanted, I guess, went ahead with the idea is that mushrooms are truly kind of gaining, I think, a lot of interest broadly. And so I think people are actively searching for mushroom-related products. And especially once they taste it, I think they kind of get what we're going for. And so I think we've gotten pretty good reception so far. I mean, I think it's it's kind of funny, though. We, we have spoken to some retailers who have had actually poor experiences with other mushroom products, not necessarily mushroom chips, but this one buyer, I think, this was months ago, so maybe their minds have changed now, but they said, oh, yeah, mushroom products haven't done very well with us because they haven't tasted good. <laughs> so, or, mm-hmm. or like people haven't liked them or whatever. And so it's almost like we're having to maybe change people's minds about the the category broadly, like because I, I guess, unfortunately, maybe some buyers think that there aren't any good mushroom products out there. So hopefully we're changing some minds. And I think once people taste it, they tend to hopefully get it. But yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I think it's a lot of the same maybe hesitancy that even a end consumer might have. Yeah, I think with branding and taste, you once they try it, you're all set. That's so cool. You know, like you, I've been, I pivoted pretty quickly to a retail focus and I'm excited to share some news as well in the new year on some places we'll be that we weren't this year. Yeah, definitely. I feel like we've spoken to so many brands who who started maybe more on the D2C side and are now, I guess, pivoting maybe at least more consciously into retail, which is definitely something we did. But we like to think of ourselves as still being true omni-channel. So we can definitely see that being in retail will continue to drive our D2C as well. Yeah, 100%. That's a strategy I've used at the agency for years now. I guess I misinterpreted the how difficult it was to drive online sales profitably. And my initial plan was to give it three to six months to build a brand, try to have a cash on cash positive execution, but never was my goal to be a D2C beverage brand. I've never really seen a successful one given the weights that we're shipping, but pumped on retail next year. Cool, yeah, we'll have to trade notes. Absolutely. Well, Marilyn, thank you so much for joining and have a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks again for having me, it was super fun. Absolutely.